is um, Friday 27th of March. Uh, we are here with Reza Negaristani and Martin, and I am reading the John Hawkins uh, University uh, map, and it says that there are in the world 566,000 cases, and US is now the first um, country in numbers with 92,000 cases. Okay, in this other map, uh, Roy Lab Stops uh, in YouTube, it says 96,759. Uh, For US, no? Okay, we are going to, in fact, compete with numbers. Uh, um, I would say, I'm going to boil the meter. US total cases, regardless whether they are recovered or not, 96,616. <laughs> the total deaths, 1,468. 1, the number of global cases, regardless of whether they are recovered or not, 579,892. Deaths, 26,504. Okay, so this Roy Labs stat seems to be the most updated of the, our sources. It's a YouTube link. Um, which I think uh, might come out of South Korea, but I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I wonder uh, here the the references the reference sizes are world. You you used uh, Reza. You used the world o meter. World o meter. Yes, uh, I can put it on the chats. Um, yeah. Yeah, here they have all the uh, or the all the sources here. It's, what do you think about this relationship between time and the number of deaths? That I think we are not the only ones that come every day and try to make sense out of what's going on through these stats. It is quite actually a very interesting question. An epidemiologist doesn't actually think about time when it comes to the severity of a disease, whether in terms of uh, contagiousness or in terms of the rate of mortality. Uh, in fact, uh, as I will talk later, um, the single number, the basic reproduction number, also known as R0 or R0 is a, a dimensionless number, meaning that it is not an actual rate that unfolds with time. The thing is that if we look like an epidemiologist, 
into this dimensionless number r0 then we might actually be scared of if we were regular people thinking about how the mortality rate is unfolding with time because if you have that number that gives you an indication of what will happen not might happen what will happen yeah this is interesting because the other day when we were talking with well with robin but all this group on friday for the plague pot we were discussing the the 30 million deaths of AIDS, but obviously this was over a period of yes. 34 or 35 years. Absolutely, and yes, and that's that's why the comparison of COVID-19 as a pandemic with AIDS pandemic, as Badiou has done that, I think it's just neither it's uh, it's either fundamentally disingenuous or fundamentally wrong-headed, or perhaps both. So uh, I would like to think about this dimensionless aspect of the number, and how do you characterize COVID-19 not as a sort of, as you said, not as a sort of SARS-2. What do you think is this difference? Okay, um, there, there are a few things that I will try to unpack step by step as we move forward uh, to, you know, kind of uh, provide you with some, you know, basic clues as how these things actually work in the field of epidemiology or risk analysis. Most importantly, as I mentioned, um, when it comes to an epidemic, epidemiologists are interested to calculate a number, basic reproduction ratio or rate. But that rate, as I mentioned, is not rate in a colloquial sense, meaning that it doesn't unfold with number. Essentially, this number is about assuming uh, and this is a definition that was put forward by Anderson and May, um, two famous epidemiologists, and this has become a canonical term in the field of epidemiology. Assuming that we introduce an infected individual to a host of population. The host of population, second assumption, are all susceptible to be infected by this disease, right? Now, R0 or R0 expresses how this individual, the ratio, how this individual infects other people within this host populational model. So, if the number R0 is less than one, meaning that one person 
is infected cannot infect another person, hence the disease dies out, dies out. If the number equals one, meaning that the infected person will infect another person, disease can start to proliferate on the basis of this number. Now, when we are talking about epidemics and pandemics, it is when R0 is greater than one, meaning that one person can infect multiple people. Now, you see, SARS had an extremely uh, narrow range of R0 variation. The fatality was high, but the rate of contagiousness, rates of infection from one person to another person, at the onset of basically exhibiting symptoms uh, was low. With COVID-19, with a Spanish flu, we get something far worse. Essentially, they are extremely similar in the patterns of their incidence and prevalence of contagiousness. Number R0 for both extends from 2.5 to 3.9. Both Spanish when, influenza and COVID-19. Yes, which means that lethality level is decreased, but infectiousness is increased. Lethality is not really what is the danger when it comes to epidemics or pandemics, but the rate of content, the number, this number, this dimensionless number, R0, that's when people needs to be scared. And the thing is that with COVID-19, scientists have found out that at the onset of the outbreak in Wuhan, the rate was 1.5. R0 was 1.5. When it is under 2.5, you can essentially trace, make it effective contact tracing. Okay? More or less. Given, given certain conditions, I just want to make a, a small point on the only country that so far, one of the few countries that it doesn't have uh, any infections of COVID-19 is Burundi and the president gave a very simple answer the reason that we you know why we don't have any infections is because we don't have any test to know oh yeah yes so, yes so yes the, of course but we are talking about assuming that there is the possibility to no, 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 we are actually talking about when they started testing. When they started testing, it was the median rate, uh, range uh, or the median average of R0 was 
Now, uh, for example, people like uh, Joel Hallowell, Joel Hallowell uh, and his team have ran uh, a stochastic model, uh, computational modeling of this. They have noticed that as R0 median average increases from 1.5, which was the initial case in China, to two and above 2.5, for example, the thing is that you can no longer do effective contact tracing. Not only that, containment becomes less effective as it moves toward three and above. And that's basically why I think many uh, CDC experts in the US don't believe that full containment, like Wuhan style, is possible at this point. It doesn't, it's just futile. Because right now in the US, we have 2.5 R0 and above. Um, but nonetheless, the other day you were advocating for the military control. Would be this for containment or for what? No, 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 no containment, no. The thing is that, uh, as I mentioned, diseases, infectious diseases that pass 2.5 uh, level of R0. Uh, yeah, you cannot do contact tracing, yeah. You, you, not only that, but they start to create, uh, they, they are going to perturb the entire system, essentially speaking, to the extent that things which are not related with the disease become calamities. Food shortage, people who are dying from other kinds of diseases precisely because hospitals are packed. People cannot get their drugs, so on and so forth. Just imagine. So the call for military is precisely to make sure that some of these uh, repercussions can be mitigated. Because unfortunately, when the healthcare system is overpopulated, then it's just, you know, everything else will start to create a chain reaction with things like food, healthcare, economy, so on and so forth. So, no, the military is an ancillary response here that needs to be implemented. And I would say sooner the better, to be honest with you. Because if you don't do that, uh, you just put all of your eggs in the basket of dwindling healthcare system and health providers, which are already in the US, we are seeing that they are basically getting decimated by the onslaught of the virus. I guess what we are seeing um, is this discrepancy that is occurring in the sense that we need to deal with a global pandemic, but uh, countries, uh, especially this is happening very strongly now in Europe, 
are reacting individually to it. There is no coherent uh, answer to how to deal with it, and it's everybody for themselves. So, how do you think uh, this is gonna turn out? Is uh, you think that this defense of militarism, which is uh, strongly praising, or you know, it needs a strong state to deal with it, uh, would be come problematic when we then want to try to have a more global um, approach. Presence, to, yeah. To deal with this global phenomenon, you know. Uh, yes, absolutely, yes. And, and that's, that's well, you know, any sort of extreme measure that you are going to apply at this point. As I mentioned, military is not here to uh, basically make sure people uh, survive the disease but to mitigate the repercussions of the virus outside of the health sector, right? And yes, uh, imagine that there would be a kind of a global military response. Countries starts to implement military troops, national guards, so on and so forth. Then, yes, I would say that um, they should implement it while having contingency plans or backup plans how to undo it once this is over. Because you cannot just bring military to the town hall and say that, oh well, you know, when basically the virus goes away, we are just calling you back. No. The effects of militarization of society will be enduring for quite a long time. And you have to also mitigate those effects. And that's why I think that simply putting curfew without having backup pl plans as how to mitigate the effect of militarization is also a fundamentally problematic strategy. And what do you think um, this phenomenon that is occurring will do to the idea of liberalism? On the one hand, we have some people that are praising the measures that countries like um, Korea and especially China have done. Um, on the other hand, we have this potential, there was this claim in the UK that maybe the, when we know whether one person has gone through COVID-19, we will be able to get back their freedom and start to do things and slowly kind of um, go back to normal as if were. But then obviously this uh, will counter a liberal notion that you have certain your you know you have certain rights and you know freedoms but if the you know if you will be judged according to your health this liberal idea will be uh, totally undermined which at the moment it is pretty much you know and you know except a few countries at the moment the liberal idea is put on hold so what do you think is going to happen to liberalism I would say that let's start first with 
cases like uh, China and South Korea, as I mentioned, uh, they were fortunate enough to do containment when the infectious number, uh, you know, the basic reproduction uh, number uh, was low. And that's when containment is actually effective. But we don't know yet, really. And people, I'm sure, will monitoring closely uh, when uh, they kind of, uh, you know, um, give a little bit, lift some of the, you know, lockdown, some aspects of the lockdown uh, in Wuhan. People will look at it, see if it resurges, if it explodes again, you know, in another place or maybe in the same place. So that's one. We are really in the dark in the same, in the sense that, uh, okay, from an epidemiological perspective, if the R0 was, you know, at that number, yes, containment could be effective. But we still don't know, precisely because of late delay testing, we don't know whether it was really that or something else. And, you know, the moment that you uh, lift some of those restrictions, it becomes obvious over the course of a couple of weeks. So that's one. Uh, Second, I would say that I would say that neoliberalism had already had this integration of health of an individual, perhaps under different assumptions, different titles, ingrained in its definition of freedom. And precisely once these assumptions are being challenged by forces of nature, then yes, I, I would say that uh, neoliberalism, the foundations of neoliberalism will be challenged also. But do you think the system, neoliberalism, has the capacity to reintegrate again this new scenario? in the form of, let's say, this 15 minutes test that they are talking about or potential new apps by which you can have a, a test and a result in a short period of time and then regulate the access to a particular space or the access to perform a particular physical or social yes yes of course of course but of course this is the also that's that's a scary and that's when i want to actually uh finally answer your question why is that and covid 19 is different from sars then there are five explanations for this yes i would say that yes that would that would definitely happen in the sense that uh, there would be, uh, you know, as, as they are developing uh, proper technologies and testing systems, yes, uh, basically your health would be a measure of your freedom of access, or freedom of activities. But the thing is that with this disease is that there are many, many cases and uh, it actually has become 
the center of the debates uh, in majority of essays that are being published at Lancet, people are not showing symptoms, zero symptoms whatsoever, but they are carriers. Yeah, they are vectors. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, but who is... Uh, then the thing is to... Uh, for us to ask ourselves about who's gonna aid this uh, neoliberal system is this uh, notion that uh, Martin and I were talking about this uh, pseudo panic socialism or any other sort of like platform or a corporate socialism that under the presumption of aid is gonna actually construct the infrastructure to continue reproducing ourselves under liberalism. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I would say that the first one um, is hopeless option. Uh, at this time, um, I would say most probably if we are really going to be optimistic, if we are going to be optimistic, I would say that yes, it would be a conglomeration of corporates who will do the job under the banner of neoliberalism, and that will be it. Because we have, this is something extremely worrying because in Spain, as you may know, uh, we have now a coalition between a so-called socialist party and Podemos, uh, this uh, after 15M uh, left party, and the measures that they are taking now are measures uh, that traditionally a socialist party would take like the nationalization of private uh, hospitals or the nationalization of um, resources that were in hands of private institutions. But obviously we are facing a huge catastrophe with a very high death rate. And now the Anglo-Saxon world is starting to address the problem in the present tense. So we will see how uh, yes. Boris Johnson or Trump are going to address there is another. There is another picture we have already witnessed. So uh, you see, um, under the Defensive Act in United States of America, they asked, you know, private mega corporations uh, to produce uh, and supply necessary means to combat uh, the virus. And the answer from these mega corporation was that they are afraid that once they are put under this defensive act, they become federalized, essentially being restricted. They don't want to be restricted, yeah? But nevertheless, this doesn't mean that they are not going to act. In fact, I think that they are going to act and they are going to supply far better than government, the central government. But then we will see a shift 
from the kind of governmental neoliberalism to mega corporate conglomeration of neoliberalism as basically the main player in this uh, outbreak. So it will be basically like another level of what happened after the crisis of 2008 and 2009. Like it will be a total restructuring and then mega corporations. Yes, but even higher, higher. And then of course, we should also think about, you see, once this is over, obviously both government and corporations try to do a fundamental risk assessment and create proper platforms and technologies to combat with either resurgence of the same virus or possible incidents in the future and those technologies are the most important those technologies will shape reshape actually the face of the planet as we know it and precisely because they are in the position of the mega corporations, we will see a re-entrenchment of neoliberalism in a far more, what you might call to be solid and robust ground, and outside you, of the fragility of the government, of the central government. And what do you think the role of artificial intelligence will be in this? In what sense exactly? Artificial intelligence with regard to what aspects of this outbreak? Well, just making assessment, being able to deal with data analysis would, you know, like... Uh... You see, uh, uh, David Auerbach uh, in uh, New Center, uh, uh, basically, uh, panel, uh, uh, Mohammad Salemi asked him, do you really think that, you know, um, AI and algorithms were capable of predicting this? And David Auerbach said, yes. And I believe, yes, they were completely capable of predicting this. It's just that the results of such algorithms were being obscured and overshadowed by certain interventions of the government. And now what will happen here is that with the transition to mega corporation, aid packages and aid mobilization, they will go towards certain kinds of trends where AI predictability, uh, predictable, uh, pre uh, capability to predict won't be mired by governmental decisions about trade-offs between, for example, how many people should be infected and how much we should survive the economy. AI, I think, right now is on a good footing to actually use to predict such things. But you should understand that as I mentioned earlier on, the results of such predictions provided by AI systems is not given to people. They are giving, being given to agencies 
which reanalyze them and try to basically uh, use them within their models of economy, policy making, so on and so forth. So there are, that's why they seem inaccurate, but they are accurate. So what do you think uh, made humans not be able to take into account the projections made by AI? Was it parochial arrogance? Was it uh, some uh selfishness was some what do you think um, that made humans not be taken into account these predictions if they were already there or they were not visible or what what i would say it's precisely because <clears throat> uh, humans are extremely bad at calculating trade-offs When we are talking about trade-offs, for example, between economy and the and you know people who might actually uh, and the rate and the, for example the rate of mortality uh, uh, under a certain pandemic, uh, humans obviously overreact, uh, and in most cases, not all cases, in most cases they act out of uh, their ideological assumptions. Uh, to preserve certain kinds of, uh, you know, uh, things which sound important to them, but they might not be. I don't think it's just uh, human arrogance. I think precisely that it shows that there is a great deal of application of human psychologism to the data being received by AI systems. So <clears throat> before I uh, step into finally explaining why uh, this thing is different from SARS, so we can actually kind of, you know, uh, think about the scope of the problem at hand, I just wanted to also say something that there would be a different option as well. Something that can be both extremely dark, most probably dark than light, but it can also be uh, in the vein of earlier accelerationism used to a certain kind of reconfiguration of the system. It is, <clears throat> Uh, the scenario that even mega corporations might start to die off. You see, if the, this scenario protracts, uh, governments begin to do exactly the same triage protocol priority that hospitals do to their coronavirus patients. Many of them will die, perish, like as if they never existed to begin with. And that's when things become fundamentally different. But would you advocate for <laughs> this triage or not? No, 
Not really. No, I, I, I think... I think Brunella Antonelli uh, said something uh, good, and that's why I didn't want to intervene, even though I wasn't in full agreement, but I was in agreement with the core of her discussion. We just don't know. And this is the first time that we are confronting with problems which we never thought they even exist. There is something interesting because platforms as well are creating their um, sort of triage. Amazon is deciding what kind of products. Absolutely, absolutely. Unnecessary products, absolutely, absolutely, yes. Don't you you think... Please go on, Martin. um, I, I see something occurring which I think we all are seeing because the whole general global discussion is around COVID-19. And it's very interesting thing to see how we are modeling our cognitive abilities using the same discuss, the same arguments, the same uh, concepts, the same functions of some of the uh, issues that are arriving out of this process is there a danger on being subsumed by this viral cognition mode in which we are in that is like i presume this has never happened before that it, would, it has happened it has happened it's just that but with that level of intensity, because we... Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. With that level of intensity. You see, the thing is that now, uh, precisely because not only uh, we have a better historical grasp of what has already happened, but also because we have better tracking tools, predictive tools. That's why uh, we think that this is uh fundamentally unprecedented i would say that yes it is unprecedented pace by you but i would say that it's not fundamentally unprecedented the yeah. same thing happened in 1918 with the so-called the spanish flu whose origin was probably coming from us or french or probably both because of the yeah. french colonialism Kansas, but I tell you a big difference. And there, there was a horizon. There was a potential for a horizon in the Russian Revolution. Uh, here, we seem to be at a kind of. Uh, hor- there is no. Hor- isn't this because, Martin? Isn't this because? Isn't this because the world was being made? Exactly. The new world was being made at the beginning of 20th century. Exactly. And now that is not the case by any means. Yes. Yes. There is no horizon in which after this, you know, a new world will be made or there is some, you know, possible answers. We were at the, you know, at a decrepit system. Uh, We have decrepit institutions to deal with the situation. 
we are even going back in relation to how to respond to it to the nation state so there is no horizon to look beyond this so it's yes 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 you are completely right yeah but you see sorry sorry to interrupt please but please 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 go on to some extent something similar occur and you can read this in kant with the lisbon earthquake in 1755 the whole set of colonialist interests of portugal disappear suddenly from one day to the other almost like well we don't know exactly but maybe between 10 or 100,000 people died in, in Lisbon and was like the enlightenment finished just because nature did something beyond their capacity to, to address that and was viral, not viral in terms of epidemics, but you can see this in the... As uh, something that propagates as yeah. ramification. In their writing, yeah. You see, <clears throat> I think during uh, the early 20th century, uh, when uh, you know uh, the influenza pandemic happened, uh, there was, as we were talking about, the world was being made by so many trajectories, economic, political, cultural, so on and so forth. Uh, and it was precisely because the world was being constantly being churned out. Uh, the effects of the virus uh, was not uh, something like an impasse. In fact, it wasn't really palpable, okay? But this doesn't mean that it wasn't real. Essentially, from a historical perspective, when we look into the historical uh, manuscripts about the so-called Spanish flu, we see that the Spanish flu fundamentally contributed to the end of World War I, and hence the generation of Versailles Treaty which itself has strongly contributed to World War II. It's just that precisely because of the charming mode of that time, people could not see this. But now we are in a situation that as if the world has been completely totalized, as if the world has been fully made, and that's why when the virus hits, we see the full force of the onslaught and the dynamicity and the perturbation that it carries with it. Uh, yeah, I am concerned. Uh, well, not concerned, but you were expressing certain level of uh, trust in the way in which AI, well, the algorithms that now we have could risk assess or even predict this 
potential uh, shifts or these potential not the shift. Perturbations. No, 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 not the shift. Yeah, perturbations, let's say. Uh, yes. They can only they can only you see prediction is not going to give you the full story. It just oh, gives yeah, you the indexes or the indices that there are these things are going to happen. Yeah, but I fun, to I make a plot out of that is a different story. Yeah, I fundamentally agree with Rene Tom <clears throat> and I think that prediction is not to explain. But yeah, this index, if we have this index, how do we uh, engage as humans with this index in order to, for example, uh, do the risk assessment of something like this, like a global pandemic? Because I don't know if we can do this process of engagement with, with the index that is created by an algorithm. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, there is, is, is a kind of a double dilemma here. One, the detachment of human psychologism, or sorry, the detachment of uh, predictive uh, outputs yielded by AI systems from human psychologism. And two, humans widespread incapability to create a plot out of that such that they can come up with a collective solution. Unfortunately, I think that these are unavailable. Hence, we are totally fucked. I hope that you put this in the post-production. <laughs> However, in your book, uh, Intelligence and Spirit, you gave, uh, you praised the power of intelligence, and especially in its uh, possibility. A, a power of what, Martin? Intelligence. Yes, power and of intelligence, intelligence. yes. I was just kind of reading back, and there is a moment in which you praise its potential for overcoming the fear of death. But I'm interested, like, now we are seeing in Italy, in Spain, there is uh, the incapability of dealing with the necromanagement of these bodies, that there is no, you know, the funeral companies cannot deal with it. The same uh, as Iran, the same as Iran. Yeah, or here in UK now. Yeah. So what are these images are going to do to, you know, our psyche? Collective memory, yes. Our collective memory, you know, when they have start to happen in the states that is supposed to be the most powerful country in the world, that's going to, their collective imagination is going to be absolute shattered. And I guess there is already people buying weapons, a lot of weapons, which it might trigger this, you know, contagion effect like the movie where the whole society starts to disintegrate so how do you see the role of intelligence in this situation which as you just said we are fucked and what to do with this necromanagement you think it will be able to overcome this fear of death or how this process would be well i would say that two different sectors or indexes 
uh, uh, humans will overcome that. But for completely different reasons. One, mega corporations, if they can survive, because they don't concern themselves with death, really. And two, bands of humanity, uh, which have cognitive resonance. But is it good enough? No, absolutely not. We, you see, this is why I think that ancient ethics was so important that it had issued warnings to the rest of humanity for future generations to come, that we have to develop cognitive resonance to be aloof to the threats of death. But unfortunately, we haven't done that. And at this point, what we are going to get, the best scenario, as I mentioned, certain kinds of mega corporation survival and certain kinds of cults who have cultivated that certain cognitive resonance and also survivalist skills. So unfortunately, I don't see if, okay, this is, this is a caveat here. If this is going to go away, in a couple of months, things will slowly come back to normal. There won't be too much damage. Or if there is damage, it, would, it can be repaired by, you know, regular triage. But if it protracts, unfortunately, we will see a massive clash between not just libertarian and the government, but between people who can survive this, the horrors of this plague, those who cannot, and those mega, mega corporations who have already survived. And that would be a different scenario altogether. It creates a fundamental societal and economic mistrust among the parties, which then creates further fractures, so on and so forth. That's why I said, unfortunately, we are too late. We should have thought about this far, far earlier. And by that, I don't mean, you know, three years ago, five years ago, I mean centuries ago to create certain kind of infrastructure, cognitive infrastructure, to deal with such calamities. And so far as we haven't developed them, yes, we are absolutely fucked. That's a pity to hear from you because, as I mentioned, you were one of the few with your book that kind of has given us a horizon 
Yes, that's an ethical injunction. That's all philosophers can do. You know, when you read Seneca, you feel good about yourself because it gives the best ethical injunctions. But how many people do actually follow those ethical injunctions? Um. Cognitive, um, uh, basically, uh, fortification is in fact far more important than economic fortification. It is the very base upon which any sort of economy, human economy, can survive. There are uh, a lot of like points that I would like to <clears throat> touch here, because, for example, these ethical injunctions, or if you want to talk about the yeah, uh, ways in which we can function, perform our daily life in this situation, are really useful. But, for example, I see a huge problem uh, in terms of our how equipped we are for dealing with situations that maybe uh, you have heard uh, these days about you have a family member or a friend who is diagnosed with COVID-19 goes to the hospital absolutely go to the hospital and then you you need to or you try to know how is this person and suddenly this person is dead you couldn't say goodbye you the the the, the connection is uh, broken in a way that we couldn't conceive uh, three months ago so uh, it's like they are removed from earth in a quite different way. I was trying to, to uh, conceptualize this in terms of my lived experience and I couldn't think of a similar scenario in which uh, someone close to you dies and you have no way of reaching the, the, the actual death. So in terms of, yeah, and necromanagement of this situation, we are unable. Well, this is why that uh, uh, these pandemics, um, as I have talked before, are very similar to war situations. This is what pandemics are truly war situations. This is what war makes you feel. And you see, uh, coming back to Mateen's uh, comments, is that, sure, many of us as individuals have cognitive resilience. We have, you know, cognitive techniques to deal with this, to not succumb to pure survivalism. But is that enough? No. We should have developed collective cognitive resilience, which we failed to do. And the thing is that, if we don't have that kind of collective cognitive resilience, individual cognitive resilience can only do so much. As you said, you will see your loved ones 
are being blown to pieces by cluster bombs, or for that matter, COVID-19. And then you, as an individual, slowly start to succumb to precisely those survivalist instincts and compulsions that other people follow. Yeah, I am interested in in in, in uh, well, not following uh, what is uh, going to occur with these huge angers that now are going to be morgues and how we are going to address this in social media in terms of how we are going to normalize these these huge morgues and the news about using for example in spain they use the ice palace for ice skating yes uh, yes ice, ice rinks yes yeah as, yeah so it's it's a kind of logistics that we never thought that we were going to see yeah i mean you see so <clears throat> For example, you see a Hitler industrial killing machine had the same kind of thing, and Nazis were looking at it as if it's just like a sausage factory, right? In the Bismarckian sense, you know, yeah. you don't go to a, a, a sausage factory, you just look at it from above and you, jo- or you just like basically eat the sausage without actually looking where it came from. But now we are in a, in a kind of a situation uh, that it is no longer ideological, like the Nazi regime, the death industry. It is actually part of a normal life. And that's when it, if we don't have a certain kind of collective resonance that is completely entrenched within human psyche, we become either, uh, most probably we become either fully desensitized over time as things have shown up uh, throughout COVID-19, or we start to deteriorate. Yeah, I actually did not uh, understand whether you meant with inhuman or within human. And I'm trying to think how does what is going on now relates to the inhuman discussions that you've been interested in. The, the you know the discussions on uh, inhumanism, you know, like the inhuman and not, you know, like within those discussions, how would you, how does this uh, current situation, what do the effect do they have? in your understandings of this, um, you know, this dichotomies? Well, the inhuman is it. The inhuman is essentially a cognitive, uh, the development of uh, self-emancipation, 
collective self-emancipation, uh, the development of cognitive resonance, ultimately, <coughs> that we see that, okay, we are going to die, but our death will give rise to something that surpass our achievements, surpass our freedoms. They can maximize their own freedom far above us as extant humans. But the thing is that we shouldn't fool ourselves. We don't have that right now. We are all too humans. Uh, we, this is why I think that, you know, it's not just a virus, it's not just the economy, it's just the entire system that was flawed. And system is not a, a soup where there are loose ingredients floating around. No, everything is connected in a way or another. We should have, if we don't have a certain kind of educational system, in a broadest possible sense, we won't have a good reaction to such tragedies. We don't have any of these things. And my opinion is that, my personal opinion is that, um, I don't want to say this, but I'm going to say it. We thought that the inhuman can surpass us. And we'd be proud to be dying at the foot of the inhuman, something that is better than us. Even though it might be us in a different guise. But unfortunately, with such calamities, so fast happening, so ferocious, we might see ourselves as simply those kinds of humans who didn't have any future to begin with, whether human or inhuman. So what does this do to your defense of ideas of the enlightenment? I mean, are you still... Enlightenment, yes, of course, I'm a philosopher. As I said, you know, we, we some of us as individuals just basically don't treat these things within the hyperpanic scenario. But that is not really that helpful, is it? You know, a bunch of individuals being enlightened. No. What we need was a collective enlightenment, and we failed to achieve that. And hence, the thing is that, yes, enlightenment is absolutely should be defended under no condition. But as Hegel would have said it, all abstract ideas of enlightenment should be tested by way of the practical elaborations of them in collective consciousness.
And to the extent that we haven't that, I think that it is an irrelevant question to say, uh, to ask, so what about enlightenment? No, we are not in fact talking about enlightenment anymore. We are talking about a certain degree of deterioration that will rip apart the gradients of what we called humanity and personhood. But do you think it is possible, and I am aware about uh, the naivety of this uh, question or hope that precisely because of the general impact that humanity as a community is receiving now, there is any kind of collective response in terms of, as we are seeing now, uh, in certain places of Europe, uh, in terms of a general concern regarding public health, general concern of um, government protection, general concern about public education, or something like that. It's like we are facing something extremely horrifying to face as an individual. We have to face this as a collective. So maybe creates a certain kind of awareness of this. It, it, will, it will create to a certain extent, but it, I would say that it will fall short at the end of the day, precisely because, you see, the matter or the subject matter of attaining a collective consciousness should not just be about impending perils or catastrophes, but every certain kind of thing that we are dealing with in our society and culture and economy. I think that the collective answer that we are talking about with regard to COVID-19 is a collective survivalism rather than a matter of cognitive resonance. Yeah. It might contribute to that, but should not be elided with or conflated with a certain kind of self-consciousness that it was required to, in fact, deal with this problem or similar problems to begin with. I think the idea of uh, the difference between virus and parasite can be somehow um, captured under the rubric of how Norbert Wiener uh, categorized the notion of the enemy. You see, we have different enemies. And you know, uh, when uh, Wiener was uh, working uh, uh, RAF, um, instructing uh, pilots against the onslaught of uh, Luftwaffe, uh, he, he noticed that there are different kinds of enemies. And these different kinds of enemies uh, can be actually um, 
cybernetically understood later on, of course, not at that point, he came to this conclusion. Um, his initial uh, input was that there is certain distinction between what he called uh, Manichaean um, devils and Augustinian devils. Manichaean devils are essentially those sorts, certain, those kinds of enemies uh, who change their strategies. They are trying to outsmart you at every step by any means possible. They are mutating extremely fast. And then there is Augustinian devils, uh, which are what you might call to be the forces of nature. They just do their stuff according to the laws of nature. So that was basically his basic categorization at the initial stage when he was observing uh, the, the clashes between RAF and Luftwaffe. But then he noticed a third category, an integration, an unholy integration between the Manichaean devils and the Augustinian devils, conning enemies and simply enemies that um, behave according certain kinds of law-like behaviors. I think with this virus, we should see it at the risk of sounding like Trump, who calls the virus a hidden enemy. But if we were going to apply military uh, analysis uh, to COVID-19, a la Norbert Wiener, uh, we should have seen the virus, COVID-19, as essentially that third synthesis, the synthesis between the Manichaean devils and the Augustinian devils, precisely because the virus is interacting in real time with the infrastructure of human civilization. It gets responses, even though it doesn't, I'm not talking about mutation of the virus here, even though it might mutate, but apparently the rate of mutation at this point is slow. I'm talking simply about the feedback loop between human responses in a very context sensitive manner, like for example, in Wuhan, in New York, in London, in Tehran, in Cong, in Milan, so on and so forth, in Lombardy, with regard to basically the incursion of the viral strain. And that's actually quite interesting. That creates, I would say, a better picture of how to assess 
what we are in and how can we get out of it rather than just saying that it's just pure human incompetency or it's just pure sheer force of the virus itself no it is a loop between the two Something that I find problematic within the mainstream discourse of uh, the way in which people understand this uh, reification of positive feedback loops with uh, Nick Land is that the dualism within cybernetics is understood as this dualism within a homeostatic system is positive. Yes positive and uh, negative feedback loops within another uh, macroscopic homeostatic system. Yes, and, yes. Uh, and it's not like that. It's, not, uh, it's much no. more complicated than this. Yes, 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 absolutely. Uh, uh, so you never have, a, a, as you said, this synthesis and the way in which COVID-19 operates is so complex to predict or to explain precisely because operates as you said like the synthesis between this manichaean augustinian devils yeah um, to the explanation that you asked me earlier on with regard to why is that covid-19 is different than source hence it cannot be he calls simply source two or MERS two. <clears throat> well, I mean, uh, basic epidemiology, uh, of course, gives you the simplest answer. Just add one a spike protein uh, to the current strain of virus, and the game changes fully. This is the whole idea of coronavirus. You know that what coronavirus is. Corona means so the spike protein trims the membrane, the outer membrane of the virus, which is responsible for uh, impingement, penetration, and interaction with the host. So this is spike protein. Once it trims the outer membrane of the virus, like the outer war machine. And, there's, and then the RNA comes inside and then it starts to replicate. Yes, but why is it called corona? Precisely because it creates a kind of crown-like trimming around it, hence corona. Yeah. So this is the thing that the basic epidemiology already shows that just, okay, you say that, well, you know, uh, COVID-19 is 99%, for example, similar to SARS, right? That 1% itself can fundamentally change the behavior of the virus, such that you get a completely different beast altogether. But that is not, really um, the main issue that why COVID-19 is different than SARS. 
it actually has something to do <coughs> with certain kinds of epistemic blind spots that we have currently with regard to the behavior of COVID-19. So there are, for now, uh, there are five canonical explanations as why COVID-19 is different from SARS. Uh, the first one is that the situation is different. The situation of COVID-19 in 2019 is very different from when SARS emerged. Wuhan uh, which was the epicenter of and COVID, you know, combined multiple elements uh, which made containment extremely challenging. First of all, it was a megapolis, almost 11 million people in central China. Second, it was a major hub, a major transport hub, <clears throat> center for industry and commerce, home to the largest train station, biggest airport, and definitely the largest deep water port in central China. So you see, there was a, a specific synthesis between the epicenter, the urban epicenter of the virus and the dynamic of the virus itself. The second explanation is that SARS and uh, COVID-19 have fundamentally different infectious period. As I mentioned that the R04 uh, SARS uh, at the initial uh, time was in fact less than one or one and point two, something like that. <coughs> this made SARS um, extremely containable, effectively. Um, because, you know, the peak viral shedding uh, happened after patients were already quite ill uh, with resp uh, respiratory symptoms. And there could be, and, and basically that's why they could uh, implement and deploy effective uh, contact tracing for source. Whereas with COVID-19, this wasn't the case. The COVID-19 base R0 was 1.5, and it slowly started to grow as it was exported across the globe. Now we are 
getting, as I mentioned, the, the range of R0 for uh, COVID-19 is between 2.5 and 3.9, which is basically almost the same uh, number as the Spanish flu. The third explanation of <coughs> uh, that uh, CDC and other epidemiologists at the onset of the outbreak started to speculate about was that um, COVID-19 might have a far higher rate or ratio of transmittability than SARS. Namely, the R0 is fundamentally different now. And yes, now we are saying that that was true. Um, the fourth explanation is that uh, with regard to SARS, the clinical investigation spectrum was fundamentally different too. Um, so, Apparently, uh, based on different uh, epidemiological essays, China's initial case definition was focused on pneumonia. An initial case fatality rate was reported at about 10% on the basis of narrow case definition. But as the pandemic unfolds, it has become apparent that mild cases are common COVID-19. Patients with mild cases or no symptom whatsoever <coughs> will be missed even if a more sensitive surveillance system were in place. <coughs> Which means that these patients can become vectors, still vectors very, very much like influenza. The fifth explanation is that COVID-19, as has been shown, has uh, a prominent community spread factor. While SARS was mainly an outbreak propagated within hospitals, and there weren't that much in a widespread community transmission. Similar to, uh, I mean, like, like the one that we are dealing with, with COVID-19. So these are the five uh, factors, explanatory factors of why this is fundamentally different than SARS. And not just because of the dynamic of the virus itself, but because of the, how, and where it has emerged and how it has spread across the world. In the synthesis with human infrastructure. It's interesting that, um, I don't know if this uh, differentiation between SARS and COVID-19 has to do with but use text and it's a form of reply. Yes, absolutely. 
absolutely, but absolutely. The, yes, it is, it is, of course. But the interesting element is that you <coughs> with his political outcome, I that there will be no major changes, or it will not be, you know, he doesn't expect a revolution to happen in France or even Macron to fall. So, as I said, the point here at this point is not whether revolution is going to happen or not. It is the point of no return in the worst case scenario, of course. That if it protracts, if it becomes out of hand, neither capitalism nor alternatives, revolutionary emancipative alternatives will work because all means of traditional political mobilizations will be handicapped by them. And that's why I think that rather than thinking about this virus within the terms of what, whether it is just a pandemic like other pandemics or different pandemics, we should also think about in the Kantian productive imagination sense, um, about different forms of political mobilizations. And of course, such political mobilizations can no longer be a-technological, like Agamben or Badiou. They are absolutely going to be technological, but then what should they be? This is something that I think that is a task for any leftist to think about <clears throat> the worst case scenario at this point, that capitalism or the global world order or this phase of globalization will be decimated by the onslaught. But so as traditional means of leftist politics. And so, what would be the alternative? What, how can we think about new forms of mobilizations? Mobilization, forms of mobilizations which are not ludites, which are not against technology, which are not against civilization, in fact, but things that can dredge up humanity from the pits of uncertainty.